So I was looking through my bookcase uh, a couple of weeks ago and I pulled out a book, a book that I love called 100 Ways to Write Badly Well. 100 Ways to Write Badly Well. Now, this book is, uh, it's a kind of writing manual, or maybe I should call it uh, an anti-writing manual, because it's a book that essentially tries to teach you the traits of bad writing. Each page of the book focuses on a different aspect of bad writing craft. For example, overcramming every sentence with adjectives, or patronising your audience's intelligence, or uh, shoehorning a moral into your ending that has nothing to do with the rest of the story. Things that I would never do here on Imaginary Advice. <clears throat> Each aspect of bad writing is illustrated with an example written by the book's author, Joel Stickley. Joel is a fantastic comic writer. He's able to parody these bad writing practices in a way that makes like every single page incredibly funny. But what I love about the writing here, it goes, it goes further than comedy because Joel manages to somehow take each of these elements of bad writing and transform them into art. I think this is because over the course of each writing example, Joel takes his selected writing floor and he doubles down on it again and again and again. With each new sentence, he kind of turns up the volume of the floor even more and lets it warp and distort the text. He's able to take each writing floor and wield it like a poetic constraint and like all good poetic constraints these flaws they they end up steering the writing in bizarre directions so we end up in these 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 fascinating places that you wouldn't be able to go if you were obeying the rules of good writing so even though this is a book that pokes fun at the ways in which bad writers misuse language. It's also this incredible celebration of those misuses. And it reveals the inherent potential that can come from breaking a rule of supposed good writing. This book, it makes, it makes me feel so much more positive about my own writing flaws. <laughs> so I really wanted to share some pieces from this book with you. Because I haven't introduced myself yet, have I? Okay, my name is Ross Sutherland. Uh, you're listening to the podcast Imaginary Advice. Um, it's a podcast of audio fiction and essays about storytelling and language. Okay, uh, and this month on the podcast, uh, we're featuring a series of extracts from the book 100 Ways to Write Badly Well. So I emailed Joel Stickley and I asked him, and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to say that he agreed. Joel is actually an old friend and writing colleague of mine. We go way back. We've written theatre shows together. We were even in a boy band together uh, in the early noughties. But um, that's a story for another time. Anyway, it was great to get an opportunity to 
collaborate with Joel again after all these years. Joel and I picked our favourite eight examples each from the book and then split the reading between us. Also, thanks to Lizzie Denning for additional voice acting here. So, here we go. Your guide to being a better bad writer. You're listening to Imaginary Advice. Imaginary Start your novel at least three chapters before the first significant event of the plot. Start your novel at least three chapters before the first significant event of the plot. Alan picks up his slice of toast and bites into it thoughtfully. The crescent shape left by his teeth is like a smaller version of the shark bite Julia will suffer next week, but at the moment, Alan knows nothing about that. The surface of his coffee ripples like a deceptively calm ocean, which, any moment now, sharks will come leaping out of. He slurps it, completely unaware. So far, there is no sign of his parcel. The new scuba mask with anti-fog coating that will eventually, or no, not for some days, save his life. There isn't even a postcard from Julia, despite her still, at this point, having enough fingers to write one. He wants to know what the weather is like on the coast before he goes there on Thursday. Of course, today is Monday, so there's still plenty of time. Maybe a postcard will come tomorrow. Until then, Alan just has to get through his last few days at work, which promise to be mind-numbingly repetitive and predictable. Exactly... Unlike a shark attack. Recap the previous book. Recap the previous book. Daniel Peridieu. Newly appointed Captain of the Guard after his heroics at the Battle of Langathon, where he had single-handedly held the main keep of the castle against a determined strike force of magically strengthened ape-men called Grathrax, felt uneasy. It had been three months since the Southern Enchanters had broken the centuries-old treaty and launched their attack under cover of night, only to be foiled by the swift actions of Lothar Shiningheart, who had revealed himself to be the long-lost heir of Lord Langathon, and thus fulfilled the prophecy of the Protector, as passed down from generation to generation of Ingturon scholars, and eventually into the teachings of Yathal Cuthdan, last of the Ingturon, who had nobly sacrificed himself at the mountains of Rethimar to save Lothar's life and grant him the mysterious power of the Ancient Ones. Now, everything was quiet. Too quiet. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? He asked his companion. 
Remy Longshanks, the reformed thief whose skill with throwing knives had proved to be invaluable when he and Daniel had infiltrated the Enchanter's inner sanctum and stolen their magical hearthstone, thus severing the link that allowed them to command the Grathrak army, looked up. Don't know, he replied. Were you thinking that peace has settled uneasily on these lands and that the dark shadow of the old magic still lurks somewhere far to the south, despite our success in repelling the specific threats that previously faced us? Pretty much, nodded Daniel. Include unnecessary linguistic redundancies of language. Include unnecessary linguistic redundancies of language. Kevin entered his PIN number into the ATM machine at a rapid rate of speed. He had a pre-planned date arrangement with a female woman and didn't want to be delayed by lateness. If he compared and contrasted Olivia with previous girlfriends he dated before, she was universally superior and better in every way. He grasped and took his card from the mechanical machine. Hurry. Quickly, he whispered under his breath, his hand advancing forward toward the cash slot where his money would come out. He glanced at the LCD display, which was showing an advertising commercial. I'm in too much of a rush to have time for this, he muttered. You can keep your added bonus free gift. Finally, at last, his cash money emerged into view and he grabbed it with his hand. Irregardless of this delay, the end result of his date arrangement would be a new beginning at this moment in time. Little did he know or realise that his goals and objectives were about to be completely and utterly met in a way and manner it was impossible to over-exaggerate. Banish said from your vocabulary. Banish said from your vocabulary. I'm afraid she's dead, unveiled the doctor. A silence settled on the room as the family took this in. You're sure? Proclaimed Lois, quietly. The doctor nodded. I'm terribly sorry. He conversed. It was a peaceful end. Did she... Lois vocalised. Did she have any last words? Yes. Nodded the doctor, nodding. She epitaphed a few words before she left us. Tell my children I love them, she stated. Then she recapitulated, all of them. And shortly after that, she went. I can't believe it. Philosophised Lois. I can't believe she's gone. I'm so terribly sorry. The doctor gushed. Can I ask a question? Questioned Lois. Of course. Dialogued the doctor. 
If we'd brought her in sooner... She began. Is there anything we could have done? She continued. To give her more time? She concluded, questioningly. I... I'm afraid not. The doctor ejaculated. Describe the wrong things. Describe the wrong things. Carol stands absolutely still. In front of her, not more than ten feet away, is a fully grown black bear. The ferns beneath its feet are crumpled and slightly browning, their delicate fronds pressed into the thick, wet mud of the forest floor. Carol hesitates. Slowly, very slowly, she looks around for a possible escape route. The light falling through the canopy of leaves has a pale, thin quality to it, and the air is brackish with a faint scent of the stagnant water from the nearby estuary. She decides to make a dash for it. Her shoes are slightly too tight, pinching at her toes and digging into the soft skin just above her heels. If she had put on thicker socks this morning, this wouldn't be a problem. But in her haste to leave the house, she had grabbed a thin white cotton pair designed to sit low on the ankle, hidden below the line of the shoe. Seeing her move, the bear leaps forward. A plane is flying directly overhead, and the sound of its engines is like the rumble of a distant washing machine. It is a passenger plane of some sort, most probably an old 737 with a good few years of service still ahead of it. The bear eats Carol. Have your characters see themselves in mirrors? Have your characters see themselves in mirrors? Joe Stockley gave himself a wry grin as he passed the full-length mirror in the hallway. He was a striking figure, well clear of six foot in height and made to seem even taller by the exquisitely tailored morning suit he had thrown on effortlessly yet perfectly that morning. His eyes twinkled with the playful intelligence of cynical wisdom that informed his every action. The grin he gave himself was one of quiet recognition rather than vanity, for self-regard was a vice he had studiously avoided in his quest for perfection. Meanwhile, Joe's wife Angelica waited for him patiently at their regular restaurant table, idly turning a highly polished spoon over and over in her hands. As the light flashed off it, she caught a glimpse of her own face, breathtakingly beautiful, even with the distorted reflection the curved surface of the spoon offered her. Her deep brown eyes shone with the light of compassion, which had emanated from her for as long as anyone could remember, bathing all who met her in the glow of her kindness and love. With the slightest motion of her hand, she called over a waiter. Antonio, who had been admiring Angelica from a discreet distance, did his best to glide effortlessly as he approached the table. 
Looking up, he met his customer's eye and was about to speak when he saw himself reflected in their soft radiance. He was in his late thirties, athletic in build and outwardly self-assured. The slight creases around his eyes betrayed a lifetime of both tears and laughter. Reflected in her eyes, he could faintly make out the darkened window of the restaurant, which in turn reflected an image of himself standing at the table holding his notepad and highly polished pen. In fact, so highly polished was the pen that he could make out in it a reflection of the restaurant around him. And in that restaurant, the windows which reflected the eyes of the customers, which themselves reflected the pen again. Drop in and out of reported dialogue for no clear reason. Drop in and out of reported dialogue for no clear reason. So, what'll it be? By the way, the captain was looking at me and idly hefting his cutlass. I could tell he had a fate in mind for me already. Will you be joining us, sir? I, uh... The edge of the cutlass was glinting in the firelight. Tell me again where you're headed? I asked. He replied, telling me the crew's planned itinerary for the next few months and mentioning various likely events along the way which he presumably thought would entice me into a life of piracy. I had to admit, there were appealing elements. I have to admit, I admitted, there are appealing elements. He reminded me of my current precarious status as a guest aboard his ship, using turns of phrase that, while not precisely threatening, did little to reassure me as to my continued safety as a non-crew member aboard the pewter squid. I answered in such a way as to try to play for time, but he interrupted me with some evident frustration. I attempted to placate him. He pressed me for a firm commitment. I acceded. Grrr, he roared. A fine decision, lad. He followed this with more warm words, telling me that one day I would captain my own ship and that I would find him a fair and equitable leader, provided I never crossed him. Provided you never cross me, he concluded. I assure you, I assured him. The rest of the sentence I spoke was the substance of my assurance, which was the promise that I would never betray his trust. Glad, he chuckled. The concluding part of this sentiment confirmed that what he was glad about was to hear it. And that, my dear friends, is how I began my career as a pirate and syntactic grammarian. Don't worry about tenses. Don't worry about tenses. I sit at my desk with my head in my hands and sighed. It is only three days until the deadline, I think, and I'm going to have had to finish everything before then. If only I have finished this now, I thought, and leaned back on my chair. Just then, the phone has rung. I am answering it. Hello? I'm going to have asked. It is my editor. He was angry, but not as angry as I remember him being when I am handing in the work late four days from now. Is this work going to have been finished when it is currently the deadline, which at present is in the future? He demanded. I am planning to have been waiting for it. 
as I presently am. When writing radio drama, use dialogue to set the scene. When writing radio drama, use dialogue to set the scene. Hello, who's there? I can see a light outside, Albert. Yes, Meredith, I see it also. But what the devil? Aha! My God, Meredith, it's Peter, your husband. Peter, what are you doing bursting suddenly into the room with a gun in your hand and a look of fury on your face? I'm furious, Meredith. In fact, I'm pointing this gun at you right now. Don't worry, Meredith. I'll wrestle him to the ground. You're fighting him, Albert. Yes, and I'm winning, too. You have your foot on my windpipe, and you are overpowering me. Commit to cliches. Commit to cliches. Run like the wind, Olaf shouted. The kind of wind that goes very fast in a certain direction, then changes course abruptly to avoid obstacles, while taking care not to let itself be caught by its pursuers. Annika glanced over her shoulder. It literally felt as if her heart was in her throat. A thumping knot of muscle lodged just behind her tonsils, pumping blood around her body from its strange new position through arteries that presumably had been rerouted down her throat in some way. She ran as fast as she could, knowing that what pursued her was her worst nightmare. Worse than finding herself back at school with no clothes on. Worse than her teeth falling out in the middle of a business meeting. Worse than not being able to understand what the man in the golden high chair was saying and then noticing that he has the face of her boss, but sometimes it's the face of her old piano tutor. And she somehow knows, without knowing how she knows, that if she gets too close he will shout at her, but the room is getting smaller and smaller and her shoes are too tight. It was worse than any of those things. And was made even more terrifying by the knowledge that it wasn't in fact a nightmare, but a real thing in her waking life. It was, however, a figurative nightmare, with all the concomitant emotional impact that description suggests. For which, see above. Don't not use double negatives. Don't not use double negatives. Although I wasn't unfamiliar with the failings of post-structuralism, this particular book lacked some of the omissions I didn't expect to not find. I had neglected to read the index, but this was an oversight that failed to concern me. That is to say, if I hadn't neglected the index, my lack of neglect wouldn't have concerned me less. This doesn't fail to be a non-trivial problem, I muttered to myself. There couldn't be the absence of something I'm failing to miss, could there? It wasn't something other than nonsense to imagine that I'd succeeded in failing to untangle the many far-from-non-linguistic problems that this text certainly didn't lack. I just didn't seem to be able to identify the missing elements, or rather, the absence of them. 
Perhaps my failure to find those emissions was itself not insignificant. Maybe I'm just being too negative. I didn't not whisper to no one other than myself. Subtly weave your own opinions into the narrative. Subtly weave your own opinions into the narrative. Simone was late home from work that day. Something that could have been prevented had the council consulted more widely before implementing their scheme to fully pedestrianise the city centre. At the moment her key turned in the lock of her front door, it was 6.36pm and the streetlights, despite the fact that it had been getting dark for the last hour, were just beginning to blink on. Another result of the local authority being in the pocket of environmental pressure groups. At first, she didn't see the body slumped in the middle of her living room, bleeding onto the carpet and making stains which would undoubtedly require the use of a cleaning product, the sale of which was restricted due to its hazardous chemical content. In this situation, it seemed, the need for effective carpet shampoo would be forgotten in the mindless rush to protect every so-called endangered fish in every scummy pond. She screamed in terror, producing a noise which in all likelihood would be described as noise pollution by some faceless bureaucrat who thinks he can tell us all what to think. Her hands trembling, she reached for her phone. The phone which, if the green thought police had their way, she wouldn't even be able to charge up, except by putting an unsightly wind turbine in her own back garden. And dialed the emergency number. Hello? She gasped, using up a small amount of oxygen, which probably made her a bad person, according to the maniacs who think we should all worship trees and go around singing lullabies to flowers. I need the police here right away. She listened to the operator for a second. Although, you're probably supposed to call them telephonically challenged equal opportunity secular emergency operatives these days. OK, well, how long will it take them on bicycles? Fail to contextualise dialogue. Fail to contextualise dialogue. He burst into the room. So, it was you all along. Yes, that's right. You were behind the whole thing. Not quite. You see, it was his idea. Whose idea? My idea. You. But I thought you were... Not quite. You see... No, let him answer for himself. Where did you come from? I was behind him. Me? No, the first one. Me? Hang on. Which of you is the murderer? I've, I've lost track. Uh, I, think, I think it was him. Was he the one who burst into the room? Or was that you? I think it was me. Okay. Who spoke first? How many of us are there? One, two, three, and myself. I make it four. What about her? Oh, hi everyone. Do we know who the murderer is yet? Use supplementary appositives, noun phrase constituents designed to convey additional information, in all your sentences. Use supplementary appositives, noun phrase constituents designed to convey additional information, in all your sentences. The dog, a mottled grey lurcher with a lazy eye, regarded me superciliously. I had no idea how I, a simple dog-fearing man, would manage to sneak past it and through the gate, a rusted metal barrier, to freedom. I shifted on my feet, those fleshy and ever so slightly arthritic appendages, nervously. Good doggy, I, an inexperienced dog soother to say the least, cooed. 
Do you want a bone? A hard calcified material of which animal skeletons are constituted? Do you? Do you? I waved the bone, a sheep tibia, towards him. I just had to buy myself enough time, the abstract concept describing the indefinite continued progress of events, to run away. The dog, an imposing presence with its powerful jaws, two perfectly evolved pincers capable of crushing a human leg, one of the limbs upon which a person stands, growled. It was now the conceptual moment at which these events were happening, or never at no time in the future. I, the person trying to escape from the dog, the animal that was threatening my health, the state of being free from illness or injury, a specific instance of physical harm or damage, started running. Forget what you're doing halfway through a sentence. Forget what you're doing halfway through a sentence. He opened the door and got into the car engine shuddered into life and the vehicle lurched down the driveway. He knew it was only a matter of time was against him and he had to do something had to be done. If there was one thing he knew for sure as he could be under the circumstances were against him, he thought with a grim smile formed on his face the facts. Suddenly, the car jolted the car. He hadn't been watching. The road came to an abrupt stop. In front of him was a barrier across the road came to an abrupt stop. It was too late to slow down into the ravine below the car was a deep ravine. He jammed his foot on the brakes weren't working. With a screeching metal, screech of metal screeched as he flew into the darkness opened and swallowed him. He screamed, No! He screamed. His life was flashing before he even had time to think about what he had done with his life was flashing before his eyes filled with tears of regretted so many things he regretted in his life was flashing before his eyes had time to close his eyes filled with tears in his eyes closed. The ending should have a twist. Or should it? The ending should have a twist. Or should it? Sarah sank into an armchair and let out a satisfied sigh. It was good to be home. As remarkable as it seemed, the house was just as she had left it all those weeks ago. Or, if there were differences, they were small things. A layer of dust on the furniture. A pile of unopened letters in the hallway. The gentle click of a pistol being cocked. Wait, what? Get down on the floor! Screamed the masked gunman, kicking open the kitchen door. Face down! Face down! Sarah hesitated for a moment. Freddy? She gasped. Freddy, is that you? The gunman froze. No. What are you doing? Asked Sarah. I thought we were a team. We were, whispered Freddy. But that was before 
He reached up to his face and gripped his mask. Sarah braced herself. Before... He pulled aside the fabric. Sarah couldn't look. Before this... He yelled, throwing the mask to the floor. Look at me, Sarah. Look at what you've done to me. She slowly raised her eyes to his. A second passed. You did this, Sarah. You gave me this big smile by being so lovely. Sarah grinned back at him. You big silly. She laughed. You had me worried there. <laughs> worried? He chuckled. What could there possibly be to worry about? It's all safe again. We won, Sarah. I think you mean I won. Grinned Sarah, turning into a werewolf, which she had been all along, and eating him. No, no! Thanks again to Joel Stickley. Thanks also to Lizzie Denning for the additional voice work. Thanks also to Jeremy Wormsley for some of today's incidental music. The original book from which these extracts are taken is currently tragically out of print. However, Joel has really generously given me permission to give an ebook version uh, to every imaginary advice patreon supporter that's from one dollar on up uh and yeah that's going to be available to new supporters and old so if you'd like to support the podcast and also get a free copy of 100 ways to write badly well go to www.patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash ross g Sutherland the uh, $5 tier gets you access to the bonus podcast Imaginary Reprise where I talk with a guest about writing for audio and do a behind the scenes look at a past episode this month it's the episode Exorcist Dave Stewart Part 2 the uh, $15 Patreon tier gets you an annual exclusive essay film the $25 tier gets you an original poem commission. That's all this month. My name again is Ross Sutherland. You have been listening to Imaginary Advice. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>